And then they cross the threshold. And something happens. I'm sure it's just me. Open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We get to go from that little glimmer of joy and peace and delight to talking about the misery that exists on the earth as a result of the continuing spread of sin in Genesis 4. But hopefully we'll be able to turn the corner and by the time we're done, come back to something that has to do with the joy that we're still moving towards of which all of this is just a, a hint or an echo. So let me, let me warn you up front, we're going to read Genesis 4, 17 through 26. Uh, the warning is that we've got some names in here that have to be read, and there's this weird clash of cultures between Southern American and... Hebrew Old Testament. Those things don't pair up well together, all right? So this is not an authoritative reading or pronunciation, but we'll do the best that we can, and then we'll work our way through the passage after we pray. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zelah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zelah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zelah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy, or maybe better, a young man, for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, open our ears that we would be able to hear you speak to us. Give us eyes to see by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us rightly understand and appreciate how desperate the human condition is apart from our King and Creator, as we rebel actively, daily against you. Give us also renewed hope in the promise that is ours, 
because of our reconciliation to our Creator by the death of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's sort of an odd passage, 417 through 26. One of the things that needs to be uh, said is that this is a continuation of what we looked at last week in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. And to say that is to say that Cain and Abel is an outworking of the promise of a seed that would be given to the woman, a seed that would be in opposition to or hostile to the seed of the serpent. So there's going to be an ungodly line, as it were, and a godly line. And there's going to be permanent, ongoing conflict between these two lines. In chapter 4, the birth of Cain and Abel represents the very beginning of that conflict. Cain, representing the ungodly line, murders his brother Abel, who represents the godly line. And as a result of God's uh, judgment on Cain, Cain is cursed to wander the earth, to be separated, to be estranged from God, and to be pushed further and further into exile, away from the presence of God. 4.17 then picks up that idea of Cain being pushed away from God, separated from God because of his sin and rebellion, because of killing his brother, and looks at what happens not just with Cain, but by extension, what happens or what becomes of Cain's line. It traces that out, and then at the end of the chapter, we're brought back to the godly line, which now moves from Abel, because of Abel's death, to Seth, a new son that is given to Adam and Eve. So one of the things that we want to do is not just to recognize then that this is a continuation of the theme of the godly and the ungodly and the contrast and the conflict that exists between those two lines, but one of the unique things that Genesis 4, 17 through 26 does is that because most of the ink, so to speak, is, is used to detail or to give an account of Cain's line, it's worth noting what happens or what things take place with this ungodly line? What, do, what does the future hold for them? So all of this breaks down in two ways. One is that as you're looking at the ungodly line in the bulk of this passage in the second half, the thing that characterizes the ungodly line, Cain's line, Cain's descendants, is work. And not just, not just work in and of itself, because remember we said in the early chapters of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, work is given to Adam and Eve in the garden as a gift, as a way for them to relate to their Creator and to have something meaningful to do with God and His creation. It was that work was actually a way that our relationship with God was going to be stimulated and was going to be strengthened. There was going to be a stronger tie to God as we worked in His creation to further His purposes. So it's not that the ungodly line works, therefore we draw the conclusion, oh, work is bad because, look, only godless heathen people work. But it's the idea that the work that Cain's descendants do is a work that is without God. So what characterizes this wayward line 
that follows on from Cain is a godless kind of work that invests everything in the here and now. Whereas the godly line that we're reintroduced to at the end of the chapter, what characterizes the godly line is not primarily work, but is worship. So, for example, let's start with the ungodly line and look at what it is that we see about this godless work that ungodly men do. In 417, Cain has a wife and he has a son. Remember the last time that we saw Cain in verses 15 and 16, or 16 in particular, Cain is leaving, is going out from the presence of the Lord in his own sort of personal exile, and he's being separated and distant from the immediate relations that he has. And so when we turn the corner in verse 17 and we find out, oh, lo and behold, Cain has a wife and he has a child. He's settling down and he has a family. Things seem to be working out pretty well for Cain. And then we read further that this son that Cain has is named Enoch and that Cain presumably builds a city and names the city after his son. Why is he building a city? What is the significance of that? Right, in, in our mind, because we have urban areas, because we have city sprawl, because some of us like country better than city, we think of city as noisy, trafficy, polluted, always busy. Oftentimes we have negative connotations with the city. The city is somewhere you go for a night out on the town. You go there because you want to catch a show, but you don't want to live there. In Old Testament times, though, in an ancient context, a city was something to aspire to because as opposed to living on your own and being exposed out in the vast tracts of land to animals or to other people, a city represented something more stable and permanent. A city was where you went to find security and to find peace and to provide shelter, and to find shelter. So isn't it interesting then that when Cain is expelled from the presence of the Lord and is cursed, as he wanders farther from the Lord, one of the things that he does in addition to building his own family is he builds a city, presumably for security and shelter and comfort. Now, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with building a family. Even that was one of the creation blessings that God pronounced over humanity, be fruitful and multiply. There's nothing wrong with building a family. A family is a good thing. A family is a gift from God. There's nothing wrong in and of itself with building a city with building shelter, with building a place where you can find security from a hostile world or from the enemies or from the elements. Nothing wrong with that. The problem, though, is when the attempt to build a city, so to speak, is the way that you try to cope with the fact that you have been separated from God. 
In other words, when you lose God as your fortress and as your security and as your provider, if in response to that loss you build a city to try to replace God, that's a problem. The problem is not so much the city as much as what the city is for. What is the motive behind your building? What is the motive behind the effort that you put into this project? And there's nothing in the effort that we see here going on with Cain that gives us any idea or indication that Cain is aspiring to build something for the glory and honor of God. Rather, Cain has showed all through chapter 4 that his first and foremost concern is himself. So when he builds a city, it is not a stretch to imagine that he's building a city for his own sake and to make up for the estrangement and the exile that he has already experienced at the hands of the Lord. And so here's the warning. It does not matter how much you build or where you try to create your security, the fact of the matter is, just like for Cain, there is no way to build yourself a form of protection that will keep you out from under the curse of God when you have been exiled from Him. Cain lives his life under the curse. Nothing that he can do will change that fact. There is no protection that Cain will ultimately find from God's judgment. But this is the human condition. This is what the human heart does when it is alienated from God. To the extent that it recognizes that estrangement, that alienation, when the human heart knows that it is exposed, that it is in danger, that it needs something, rather than turning to God to find it, the human heart will always seek to build it on its own. So it needs to be said that this is not just a temptation that is unique to Cain. This is a temptation and a struggle that exists for all humanity. Even you and I fall prey to this line of thinking. If for whatever reason there seems to be something between me and God, well, rather than reconciling with God, rather than seeking forgiveness, rather than confessing my sin and making things right, I'll see to it myself that I build up whatever kind of comfort or peace of mind that I can only find with God. I can do that. So for some of us, it may, it may look like pouring ourselves into work. You don't want to be left alone with your thoughts. You don't want to be left alone reflecting on where it is that you stand with the Lord, and so you busy yourself at an office, in the home, with hobbies, any number of things to build yourself up or to build something up for yourself 
because you're so desperate and you're in such a dangerous plight apart from God. You go a little bit further and you find that from Cain and his descendants come not just a city but culture as well. So if you skip down to verse 20. Lamech has two wives. One wife gives birth to a couple sons. And in verse 20 we read, Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. The other son, Jubal, he's a musician. He creates musical instruments. So you've got herding and livestock to provide for society, you've got music to make life more enjoyable. And then the next one, Tubal Cain, is the father of those who make bronze and iron. They make instruments, they make tools. You see what's going on here? Cain builds a city, the exile, the one who's estranged from God, builds a city to make up for what he lacks. His descendants continue to build and invest in this life, in this world, by doing some legitimately good things. Listen, I'm not going to complain about the fact that there are people who rear cattle or sheep or pigs because I like to eat barbecue. I like to go to 13th Street and be able to order something and for them to hand it to me on a plate and sit down and have a meal with my kids. That's a good thing. I'm not going to complain about that. I like music. Probably not the music that my kids like. But I like it. They like it. You like it too. Music is a good thing. Instruments are a good thing. Later on in the Old Testament, God is going to encourage His people over and over again to take up instruments and sing praises to the Lord. Tools are a good thing. Hammers, saws, medical technology, all of those things are good things. The problem is when those good things are an end in themselves. The problem is that no matter how much you build, no matter how much you create, no matter how much you develop, if you are not in right standing relationship with God, there is a sense in which ultimately it's meaningless and it's futile. So look at what happens. We've got on the one hand a city being built, we've got culture that's being developed, or at least the early stages of it, but look at what else is happening with all of this progress, all of this ingenuity that's coming to the scene. What else do we see happening? Well, if you go back to verse 19, you have Lamech taking two wives for himself. And then later on, we come back to Lamech, and what is Lamech doing in verse 23 and following? He's admitting the fact that like his forefather Cain, he also has killed a man. A lot of good things happening with the city and with culture, but there's also a lot of sin happening as well. 
the sin that exists in the seed of the woman, when it's left to itself, will continue to deepen and worsen. It will go from corruption to corruption, and it will metastasize. What God initially or originally gave to His people in the form of marriage, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, singular, as a foreshadowing of the union between Christ and His church. What God did in that act of blessing is now being perverted and corrupted because Lamech is saying, I don't just want one, I want two. So you have the first bigamist. And this, by the way, is just seven generations from Adam. Adam, Cain, on down, Lamech makes number seven. And then Lamech number seven, which by the way, seven, right, this probably is not accidental, seven is usually a, a number that you associate something good or complete or perfect, right? So when you get to your seventh descendant, if you're going to stop and camp out on the seventh descendant, Lamech, you're expecting something good to come from him. What do you get from this seventh descendant? You get a perfecting of sin. And notice that when you get to verse 23, Lamech is telling his two wives about murder. Notice he's not just talking about the fact that he killed a young man, he's singing about it. It's a, it's a poem that's put into chapter 4. When you read the poem, it slows the pace down as the reader or as the storyteller. It, it has a way of drawing it out, but then also there is a, with poetry, with music, right, lyrics, there is a certain kind of creativity that's invested in that. In other words, Lamech is not just a bigamist. He is not just a murderer. He is not just sinful. He's someone that sings over his sin. Good thing we're past all of that, right? Who in the world would sing over their sin today? Right? And listen, people, I don't, I don't say that to say those poor slobs out there who would sing over their sin. You and I are perfectly capable, and we know it, of enjoying and celebrating our own sin. We may not do it with a mic in our hands, but we'll do it in the privacy of our own home. We'll seek out the kind of distractions or entertainment that fit my desires and my aspirations to make me feel better about myself or to rationalize what it is that I'm doing or what it is that I'm given over to. This is, this is not an issue of them. This is an issue of us. This is what humanity looks like when it is estranged from God. You and I are not better people. We are redeemed people. We are not 
righteous people in contrast to the unrighteous. We are people who have been declared righteous and who are being made righteous. These same impulses course through your veins and mine every single day. And this is so ingrained in human nature that Paul addresses this very idea in Romans chapter 1. At the end of Romans chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 32, although they, talking about people who are separated, alienated from God, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things, sexual immorality, theft, greed, disobedience to parents, he lists in there, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Do you hear that? Sin loves to be celebrated, and it loves to be normalized. And this is what happens anytime a man, a woman, or child is left to himself or herself to carve out their own path, to chart their own course in life. So there needs to be a sense where as faithful Christians who are trying to read God's Word well, we look at this and we say, on the one hand, this gives us signs or indications of the fact that God's grace continues to be present in a fallen world. It is by God's grace that men and women continue to draw breath, and by God's grace that they are able to build and create good, valuable, beneficial things. Right? Vaccinations that are produced as Christians, we don't have to ask, did a Christian manufacture this vaccine? We can ask, does the vaccine work? And we say, well, if the vaccine works, I'll go ahead and take it because God's grace covers this world so that even those who are opposed to God are still permitted and allowed to do things that will benefit the rest of humanity. God is so gracious to allow rebels to contribute things to life that will make life better. But it also comes back to tell us that no matter how much common grace God gives to every single person indiscriminately, no matter how kind and gracious He is to us, no matter how many advances, no matter how many things we design or create, there is no way to work ourselves out of the curse that hangs over all of sin and all of creation. There is no vaccination for death. There is no city of refuge that you can run to to keep death from reaching you and from reaching me. You better have something more than just common grace. You better have some sort of redeeming special grace that is able to give you something that you cannot create for yourself, eternal life. And so at the end of the day, 
Cain and all of his descendants can work and they can do good things, but the only thing they can do is give themselves to this world and this life. Listen to what Psalm 49, 11 through 13 says, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, or we could say in Genesis 4, they have called their cities after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perishes. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. Scripture says... No matter what you make or what you build, you are not going to last. And if you think that what you do is ultimately going to make a difference in light of eternity simply because you did it, you're called a fool. Contrast that to what we see at the very end of chapter 4. Verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Hold your place here and go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Compare and contrast the statement that Eve makes in 4.1 with the statement that she makes in 4.25. In 4.1... When Cain is born, she says, I have gotten or produced a man-child with the Lord. In 425, she says, God has given me another offspring. Do you hear the difference? 4.1 sounds like Eve is sort of patting herself on the back. Look at what me and God did. We're a good team, me and God. And what does she have to show for it? Misery. As opposed to coming to the end of the chapter, and Eve, probably because of some maturity, some growth, walking with the Lord, recognizes that with the birth of this son, Seth, This is something that God has done. And isn't it interesting then that it's the seed that God is said to have created and given that turns out to be the godly seed. See, even here there is a hint at a contrast. It's not just the cities, it's not just the culture, it's the very seed of man that if it is only man who is creating and propagating that seed, there's nothing good that's going to come from that. But if the seed that is being created and spread and propagated, if it's a seed that is appointed by God, then we have reason to hope. Another contrast that you have is that you go from Adam to Cain to Enoch, and it's with the third son, Enoch, that you have associated the city and the calling of a city. Look in verse 17. He built a city and he called the name of the city Enoch. Now, hop over to the other line. 
that goes Adam, Seth, and Enosh, with that third son, you don't have a city or the name of a city being called, but what do you have in verse 26? He called his name Enosh, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. This, this is symbolic of what these two lines are giving themselves to, building and calling things according to this world and this life and things that are going to pass away versus giving yourself to calling out the name of the Lord in worship and in prayer because that is where you find eternal joy and peace and happiness and truth. It is dangerous to our souls to live in a country that is so wealthy and so affluent. It is dangerous to our souls to live in a Western culture that takes upon itself the right to make of itself whatever it will, to call things whatever it wants, to define terms, and to do that without God. It's dangerous for our soul because that's the stream that we swim in, and that's the kind of mentality that I began to unwittingly, unconsciously buy into. Case in point, parents or grandparents, what, what do you hope most for your kids and your grandkids? When you, when you, are, when you worry about them, right, because we all worry. Right, you see Junior doing something, you say, oh my gosh, I got a lot to worry about. Right, we all worry. What, what do you worry about? Do you worry about the school that they're going to get into? Do you worry about whether or not they're going to go to college? Do you worry about whether or not they're going to be gainfully employed? Do you worry about whether or not they're going to get out of your house? Right, there, there's nothing wrong with those things, right? It, it's good for young people to grow and mature and to go to school or to get a job or to create a family of their own. But you understand that if, if that's all that you're thinking about, that's, that's Cain-type thinking. That's thinking only about what you and your descendants will create in this temporal life. Do you ever worry or give thought that the bigger concern is whether or not your son or your daughter, your grandchild is going to call on the name of the Lord for all of their life? Any one of us sitting in this room can be called any number of things, doctor, president, senator, boss, and if you're not calling on the name of the Lord, it means nothing. But that's what we give ourselves to over and over and over again because our natural bent is back in on ourselves. 
And what God is doing, even in the early chapters of Genesis, is He is separating out for Himself a small remnant of people that He is going to preserve, that He's going to keep safe, that He's going to sanctify, who will not be identified first and foremost by their accomplishments, but who will be identified by the way that they worship the Lord. Edgewood, as a local congregation, as part of that remnant that God is even now still carving out, needs to ask itself what it is that we're going to be known by. Do we want, first and foremost, to be known because we're on the cutting edge of fill-in-the-blank? Do we want to be known for this effort, for that endeavor, for this kind of sophistication, for this kind of eloquence, or do we desire more than anything else to be known as people who call on the name of the Lord? It doesn't mean that we don't work. It doesn't mean that we don't love. It doesn't mean that we don't create artistically valuable things, but it means that we see all those things in their proper perspective, which is a distant, distant second to the God that we worship and to the God who gives us real, meaningful life in this age and in the age to come. Hebrews 13, 14. says, here, in this world, in this life, here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Which city are you looking for? Which city are you striving to enter? The city of this world, the city of man, or are you devoted to, eager for, striving for, passionate for the city of God. Let's pray. Father, in Your mercy and in Your kindness, forgive us for how easily, we dis easily distracted we are in the things of this world and this life of thinking that we can make of ourselves whatever it is that our hearts desire or whatever it is that we aspire to. Thank you for the loving discipline of a father who speaks to us through his word to expose the impurities in our hearts and in our minds, to call us back to fellowship with him renewed and deeper. Thank you for the witness and the example of Jesus Christ who shows us what it looks like to put first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and to consider all these other things as mere add-ons that follow. I pray that you would build up here at Edgewood 
a community of believers who are seeking to build and be part of the city that is to come, whose architect and builder is God, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how violently the foundations of our society or culture are shaken, that we have a city coming that is unshakable and impregnable. Thank you that we are reminded of this in a special way in this Christmas season, that because the Son has taken on human flesh and has suffered death and paid the penalty of sin, our victory over this life has already been guaranteed and promised to us. Help us to walk with that joy and gratitude and in light of that victory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Blessed week. Amen.